Moth Sanctuary Productions presents The Outsider, a Penny Dreadful novella, written by Andrew Bate and read by Chloe Gorman. Part 2. Grave Concerns. By the time I woke again, there was daylight outside, though it was muted, bleary and blue. It was the kind of light almost exclusive to the dawn hour, but to my surprise, it was already past ten. The memory of the night was like a raw nerve, sending a fluttering to my stomach each time I thought of it. Could I have seen what I thought I saw? Or was it just my condition flaring again? It suddenly became important to me to find out for certain. I had not had any hallucinations since my symptoms began, so the thought of them returning had me fearing I was regressing. To keep my mind preoccupied, I busied myself with dressing and preparing for the day. When eventually I came downstairs, the front desk was unmanned. Eliza Jane and the dog were outside, assessing the storm damage. Even in the winter-like gloom of the day and the destruction all around us, her disposition was just as cheery as ever. I offered to help, but she feigned offence and insisted I retrieve what I could of the day by exploring the town. "'Get some sights in before they all blow away,' she said. "'Take Tatum with you if you like. He's a good little tour guide. Saves him getting under my feet while I'm clearing this. Plus, he's leaving with my husband tomorrow, so now's your chance to get some quality time in with him. The dog, that is. Not my husband.' We each chuckled, and I said I'd be happy to take Tatum along. Where I planned to go that day, I was glad to have the company. Debris from the storm littered the streets as we walked. Here and there, a branch or tree had fallen. Glass from shattered windows lay as tiny glittering shards under the twilight sky, and people were clearing their homes or businesses of detritus everywhere we went. As I passed them, they gave me a look that I found hard to discern but not one of them seemed welcoming. Tatum's presence appeared to be the only thing that was keeping them from saying something toward me, for when they laid eyes on him, they would start turning away, but their disdainful expressions never changed. We moved quickly, and I tried to not say anything to anyone we passed, not even a friendly hello, for fear it would be seen as an invitation for them to unleash what they were clearly struggling to hold back. As it turned out, the dog proved to be as adept a tour guide as Eliza Jane had promised. He led me without interruption towards the two hundred steps that paved the way to the churchyard. At the foot of them, I paused and took a breath, my pulse racing from more than just the effort of the walk. Tatum sat patiently while I took in the curving steps that rose up the hill and around a corner out of sight. I was afraid of what I might find on the other side of that bend, and contemplated turning back, but a gentle lick on my hand from my companion was enough to bolster my resolve and together we began our climb. The height of the steps offered an incredible view inland, looking clean over the town out across miles of green fields filled with gorse bushes. I turned back upon myself out to sea. From this vantage point, the view extended well past the mouth of the harbour and clear to open sea. For the first time, I was able to take in just how vast the ocean beyond was. There was nothing between us and the horizon, no rocks, no trace of land, nothing even in the sky. The sight was strangely eerie, as if Wales Arch were the last stop between civilization and oblivion. Returning to our mission, 
The dog and I rounded the corner and I choked on a breath. That fearsome graveyard lay directly before us, waiting expectantly. If the dog hadn't been pulling me, excited by the familiar destination, I may have headed straight back down the steps. I had never seen such a garden of nightmares. Almost every scrap of grass had a headstone upon it, lined as if they were a crop that had sprouted out of the ground. Row upon row, packed so tightly that some of them leaned onto one another like drunken companions. Many were weather-worn, some so devastated that they were riddled with pockmarks that disintegrated any semblance of text from the stone and any memory of the deceased with it. The wind was harsher here, the taste of salt from the breeze-scattered spray of the water below settled on my lips. The dog barked towards a short elderly man, dressed in grass-stained clothing and large gloves, who had been crouched over in a row somewhere far ahead. Tatum? Is that you? The man called, standing straighter and squinting towards us with puzzled look. Tatum pulled me towards the man, who in turn bent down again to give him a pat when we got close enough. So... Who are you with Eliza Jane's dog? He was a lean man, but seemed far too old to be doing any sort of manual work, especially in a place as harsh and hard to get to as this was. But his eyes were still nimble and sharp, glowing with the intensity of a younger man, and they scrutinised me with interest. I introduced myself and informed him that I was staying at the hotel. Oh, an outsider, eh? He said with a degree of amusement. Not many are you at this time of year. So I've been told, I said, in a more defensive tone than I had intended. The man scratched his thin white hair with a gloved hand, absorbing my churlish response. Right then. I'm Sullivan. I'm the groundskeeper for the church. Have been for the better part of fifty years now. As you can see, there's a lot to be done around here on account of this storm. You pick quite a time for a holiday. Most of you come with the sunshine. If you're here to see the priest, he's gone away already. Hence why it's just me to deal with all this. Led by the tipping of his head, I looked once again at the field of stones. There's so many, I said feebly. Oh, yeah, I suppose there are. When you've been around it as long as I have, you can forget. He shrugged two needle-like shoulders. It's all part of it. Living in a town when your livelihood is determined by the sea. Mark me. Working seaside towns have higher death rates than others, and Wales Arch is even higher than that. Some of our folks become merchants, some explorers, others navy men. Dangerous professions all, and the ocean takes its fee. Even fishing can get you killed in the right circumstances. Then you've got shipwrecks and drownings and all other sorts of ways for civilians to expire. And filling one of these takes no time at all. He gestured a hand across the churchyard, in a display I found distasteful. But of course, for that same reason, a great deal of these plots are empty. Empty? Aye. If someone's lost at sea or killed on different soil and can't be repatriated, then there's no remains to inter if you follow. So many of these are just stones for the loved ones, so they have a place to come and pay their respects. I wouldn't be able to tell you which are full and which aren't, though. Don't think there's a man alive who knows that now. For all my dread and fear of the sheer scale of this place, the thought that not all of them were occupied had never crossed my mind. But thinking about it, 
What the man had said made perfect sense. No. The real graveyard for those born to a town like this is out there. Sullivan pointed out to the ocean vista, beyond the edge of the cliff. That's a fair bit more space to be buried in than here, don't you think? You know, if a boat set off from here and kept a straight heading, the next patch of land it would see would be in the Arctic. Plenty of room for someone to get lost in. Plenty of room for something to hide in, too. He spoke these last words with a funny little grin in the corner of his mouth. I followed his gaze. The uneasy feeling I felt on the stairs returned at the thought of nothing but this grey desolation for nearly 2,000 miles until the frozen tundras of the inhospitable pole. In fact, I'll do you one better, Sullivan said, suddenly sprightly and turning to me with an outstretched finger. One or two of these are said not to be graves at all. You see, a while back there were these forks. Wreckers, they were called. Smuggler types who used to use lights to trick ships into crashing on the rocks so they could steal whatever cargo they were carrying. It's said that one or two of these graves are actually a hidden entrance to a tunnel that leads right down through the cliff into a cave along the coast where these wreckers would do their work. Down there, they'd retrieve all the washed-up cargo, maybe polish off any survivors, then bring all they'd stolen back up and into the town. And if anyone came investigating, those who did it could go and hide down there where no one would ever look until the cargo's original owner or the authorities had gone. A neat little scam, wouldn't you say? The old man's delight at such monstrous acts filled me with disgust. I wondered if the people in Wales Arch had lived among their history and their dead for so long that they had forgotten the value of life. He noticed this and his smile faded. But then I suppose history's not for everyone. He sneered. Curious though, isn't it? The place where the dead come to rest turns out to be the best place for the living to hide. An overwhelming urge to change the subject swept over me. I wanted to hear no more thoughts of deaths or burials, and I recalled my original reason for coming. You weren't out here late last night by any chance, were you? I said against my own better judgement. I knew there was no way this diminutive figure could possibly be the towering creature I thought I'd seen. Equally, I didn't want to reveal anything to this stranger that would make me seem as though I was unstable. But he appeared to be a useful source of local knowledge, and given that he had probably spent more time here than any other person above ground, I thought he may have some insight into what I saw. The man chuckled. Not last night. There's not a single man in town you would have found abroad in this storm. We Wales Arch folks know better than that. I only asked because I did see someone in here last night during the storm, wandering towards the cliff. The man cocked his eyebrow and my face reddened. I prepared for his dismissal of my claim, but to my surprise, all he said was, Did you really? In a quiet tone which expressed amusement. A grin grew in the corners of his mouth. Well, fancy that. Without offering anything further, he turned back out towards the sea. I opened my mouth to ask him more, but thought better of it. His response had caught me off guard and left me with neither an answer nor a reasonable level of doubt that it wasn't a hallucination brought on by an episode. In this in-between state, I preferred to stay quiet and consider what other options that left. 
a silence fell between us that mimicked the peculiar hush of the air that comes when a storm is on its way. It was clear another would be here later in the day, but for now all was still. Even the dog had settled into a calm and sat obediently at my feet. It was in this feeling of stillness that I became acutely aware of the abbey looming further up the hill behind us. I felt its presence grow like a shadow, longing me to look at it. I fought every instinct to do so, though every alternative I could see before me was full of its own bleak horrors. Yet still none filled me with such dreadful portent as the abbey. The old man sighed and wrung his gloved hands together. Well, I'd best be getting back to it. There's plenty more to be done before the weather turns. I nodded and thanked him for the information he'd provided, though I wasn't entirely sure why, as I felt I was no closer to an answer than I had been when I arrived. He bent once more and stroked Tatum goodbye. As he lowered, the abbey came into view from out of the corner of my eye, and I couldn't help but turn towards it. It dwarfed the simple little church as a structure, and stood as a monolithic tower of stone, black against the churning sky. I breathed in a ragged scrap of breath and felt an unexpected thrill at the sight of it. It was simultaneously repugnant and alluring. A dozen fish hooks pulled against my skin, wishing me closer to it, but my instincts fought against them, keeping me in place. All the while, the unruly clouds above it never ceased their wild rolling, restless as my spirit now felt. Like it, do you? Sullivan said, flashing a knowing smile. Lots of people do. Our crown jewel. His words broke my stare away, and in a fluster, I made a point of bringing my attention back to the dog, happy to be clear of the momentary trance. This had been a mistake. I was deep into the area I hadn't wanted to see any closer, and I still didn't know whether I really saw someone here last night. Well, thank you for the conversation, Mr. Sullivan. I'd best leave you to your work. I hastily pulled at Tatum's lead for him to follow, and hurried down the path without waiting for the old man's response. I'll see you again soon, outsider, he called after me. Very soon, I'm sure. I looked back and saw him waving toward me, still smiling that grotesque, yellowed grin. Tatum was happy to be home and out of the increasingly busy wind. The calm from earlier had gone, and the weather was now priming itself for a repeat of last night's display, like an orchestra tuning before a performance. The front of the hotel was now clear of the earlier wreckage, but there was no sign of Eliza Jane. We stepped into the comforting warmth of the foyer, and she wasn't there either. I let Tatum off his lead where he proceeded to shake off the bluster of the wind from his fur and disappear into some back room, probably to a water bowl and a comfy bed. I placed the lead on the front desk, where I noticed a small note with my name on. It read, Miss Dutton, I trust Tatum was a gentleman during your walk. You'll be glad to hear there was no real harm done to the hotel. I've been called away on an errand, not sure when I'll be back. There's a bowl of soup on the bar for you. Help yourself to any tea you want. Eliza Jane. I went in search of the bowl she had mentioned and found that it was still comfortably warm. Not wishing to dine alone, I whistled for the dog to come back, but there was no response. No sign that he was even still in the hotel. Only silence, but for the ticking of a clock. Snubbed and with no interest of occupying the dining room by myself, I took the soup to my room. The great silhouette of the abbey was waiting through my window again, 
as if it were the beam from a lighthouse shining directly in. I wasn't keen to replicate the scene in the graveyard, so I took the quilt from the bedspread, stood on a chair, and hung the sheet over the tops of the shutters, covering the exposed pane. The room was much dimmer, but felt far more settled. I enjoyed my soup by the gentle light of the sconces, and spent a few hours immersed in my reading as the sound of the storm began in earnest outside. Later, as I was readying for bed, the wind whipped up against the windows again, sending the quilt tumbling from the clattering shutters. I raced over to pin it back up in place, hoping not to spot the mystery figure striding through the stones again. My attention was instead drawn through the haze of rain that scrambled the view to a light shining from within the little church. I checked the clock. It was nearly 11pm. Sullivan had mentioned that the priest had left town already, so who else would be up there at this hour? And why would they be there in this weather? My fatigue from my disturbed sleep the night before and the efforts of the day forced me to let go of the question, unable to cope with the weight that came with any more thinking. A light in a church was no cause for suspicion, any more than the light shining from my room would be to a passerby. I hung the quilt back in place, shutting the light out of sight and out of mind. Satisfied with the room's return to a state of isolated darkness, I made myself comfortable and fell into a dream-plagued sleep. In my dream, I saw the tall form flying on heavy wings that spread out as wide as its body was long. It flew along the coastline, staying close to the cliffs, not far above the fierce waves. At first I was watching it from the beach, but as it went on, I realised I was the one flying. I could look down upon the breakers crashing over the rocks with nothing but air between me and them. I could see the darkened buildings and the empty beach on the west cliff. The whole town was available to me. I could land on the sand or ascend to the top of the cliff where the army of headstones gathered. Currents of air tried to toss me from my course, but the strong muscles in my back fought against them and I held my place. I held my place and the storm couldn't move me because I was the storm. The wind ushered from my fingertips. The thunder bellowed from the deep roll of my voice. The clouds draped me as robes. Lightning rode on the current of my breath. But I was the ocean also. I existed in both spaces, the sea and sky simultaneously. Both would move at my will. I flew back across the coast and sank down, plunging myself into the hideous maw of a cave at the foot of the cliff. But I never slowed for a moment. I flew deep into it assuredly, and as swift as the wind, then up slick black steps ascending forever. I burst through the turf of the empty grave and higher still to the abbey. And though my form floated way above the ruin and was massive enough to consume it whole, my heart, my spirit was deep underwater. Higher, higher, deeper, deeper, down to the places where light failed, beyond the great plateaus, a kingdom in an abyss. My eyes flickered open. To my surprise, my head was towards the foot of the bed, and I was far from the position I had fallen asleep in. It was clearly still nighttime, and the room was dark. Despite the blackness of the room and the sound of the weather outside, I heard the unmistakable creak of slow steps moving around the landing outside. I assumed that it was simply Eliza Jane, returning from her errand late, or the dog roaming around to find her. Even so, 
I froze in place, listening to the careful thump of their movements. They crept closer to my door before coming to a halt. I could have sworn I heard the sound of harsh breathing from the other side, and in response, I held mine, not wanting to utter a sound that would give away my presence or let them know I was awake. A few moments passed in this state of tension before they moved again, and the steps padded away from my door until they disappeared entirely. Once satisfied that they wouldn't be coming back, I quickly dashed back to the head of the bed and secured myself in the corner with the covers gathered about me like a child. Too terrified to sleep, I stayed in this position for hours until I heard the first strains of the dawn chorus. With the dawn came the illusion of safety, but between the aggressive locals, hideous storms and morbid surroundings of this town, how safe could I really be? Just two more nights, I told myself in a shuddering whisper. Just two more nights. Unwilling to sit in the room any longer, I dressed and stepped out of the hotel by the time daylight first broke. I needed to walk and collect myself privately. All I had seen and heard and dreamed had me worried. This trip was supposed to be making me better, but instead I seemed to be getting worse. The scariest thought was not the irrational ways my mind was reacting to the stimuli around me, but the fact that certain things may not actually have happened at all. After all, my dream last night had been so vivid, so real, who was to say that the footsteps, or even the impossibly tall man, wasn't just one of those dreams spilling out into a waking moment? I needed clarity. The doctors had recommended fresh air to help with my physical and mental well-being. That was one of the main reasons I'd chosen to come here in the first place. So I strolled down onto the beach, hoping that the early hour would mean I would be alone. The polar wind that rushed in over the ocean was bracing. Wrapped up against it, I didn't find it that uncomfortable, and it was actually helping to keep my mood steady and thoughts measured. Acres of flotsam had been tossed ashore by the torrents of the two stormy nights, and it littered the entire stretch of beach. When I was halfway along, I noticed a couple of men ahead, slightly to my right, both with their backs turned to me. I should have known better than to think I could meet the day before a fisherman in a place such as this. One man was stood slightly further back from his companion. He had his cap in his hand and was scratching his head fretfully. The other was crouched over something. At first I didn't notice what it was they were looking at. To me it seemed like any of the other thousand large rocks that lined the path of the cliffs. But as I got closer, I realised that it was a seal covered in a light layer of sand. Its head was missing. The pattern of the wound suggested it had been taken violently, but there was no trace of any blood on the sand around it. There were bite marks on the torso, but what was most bizarre was the small flock of dead gulls scattered all around the carcass. There must have been around 15 or so of them strewn about, with no obvious evidence to indicate how they died. The man with the cap in his hand noticed my approach and turned upon me sharply. I tried to look away and keep my eyes focused on the ground ahead of me. Instead, he advanced forwards a few steps. Damned outsider, he muttered. This isn't for your eyes. The look in his eye was deadly, and I knew if I stopped, I ran the risk of real violence. The crouching man made no attempt to calm or placate his companion, but maintained his position with a stony-faced expression. I got the impression that, if the standing man had attempted to attack me, his friend would simply watch it all unfold without emotion. I gave them a wide berth and hurried past. 
The man made no further attempt to advance toward me, but stood with a nervous energy that indicated he wanted me to try so he could put me in my place. Tears welled in my tired eyes at the unexpected venom in his voice. They hated me. It was as if they were blaming me for the horrors of the scene. The man who had spoken watched me until I was well out of their view. My hands were still shaking as I reached the pier at the end of the beach, and I nearly doubled over in an effort to catch my breath. I looked up at the massive structure of the old pier, and on one of the supporting columns that rose up from the stone fishing platform beneath it, there were long, straight gouges in the wood. It was hard to tell how long they'd been there, but there was something not quite right about them, as though they had been made by some brutish hand. There was a buzzing metallic sound in my head that seemed to surround me gradually. My sinuses vibrated and there was a coppery scent in my nose. It became hard to balance, and so with great effort, I edged myself up the beach's slipway, grasping the railing tightly as I walked, and stepped back onto the promenade. I barely recall my walk back to the hotel, but upon returning, I half-stepped, half-tumbled through the entrance, causing Eliza Jane to look up sharply from behind her desk. For only a fleeting second, she pulled a face full of indignant rage, and I could see that, if she was so inclined, she could be a frighteningly intimidating force. But upon noticing it was me, crumpled on the floor, the anger swiftly slipped by. She hurried to my side and slid her arm around me, guiding me towards the tea room, where she pulled out a chair and sat me down. I expected Tatum to come bounding along with her, getting under our feet in all the excitement, but there was no sign of him. When I was settled, Eliza Jane undid my headscarf, looked into each of my eyes, then without saying a word, left the room for a few moments. When she returned, she had another cup of steaming hot tea in her hand, which she placed on the table in front of me. She then took the seat opposite me, as she had on the day I arrived, and sat silently, neither waiting for me to speak, nor hoping to impress her thoughts upon me. We stayed in this silence for many minutes, before I finally broke it. I am the storm, I said bluntly. To her credit, Eliza Jane didn't react, and instead simply asked me what I meant. I proceeded to explain all that had happened. The death of the animals, the marks on the pier, the men on the beach, and my constant overwhelming fear of the graveyard and the abbey. I've only been here two days, and in that time there's storms and terror and dead sea creatures washing up on the beach. What if my coming here hasn't washed away my condition, but has given it a place to spread? It makes me think of that saying, you take the weather with you wherever you go. Eliza Jane frowned. You think that you've brought all this our way? I'm really starting to. It's not all these things that are filling me with fear. I'm filling them with it. All those awful feelings and the black on wee days. They followed me here. Now they're infecting your town. You can all see it on me. That's why you all look at me in that strange way. Why those men out there spoke to me the way they did. They're afraid that I'll infect them too. She took my hand in one of hers and gently tapped it. Don't take this the wrong way, she said, then swiftly launched her other hand across my face. I stared at her, incredulous. I'm sorry, but you were getting into that hysterical way of thinking that becomes hard to speak with, she said in a matter-of-fact tone, clearly feeling justified in her actions. I thought it best to set you straight before I had to pull you from the ceiling. The method was abrupt, but there was no denying the result, as my thoughts were now less frantic. Still, I couldn't help but rub the now-burning cheek. 
Now I want you to listen to me and listen well, she said. Her voice was solid as the cliffside. The things that are here have been here for an uncountable age. They'll still be here for centuries after we're all dead and gone and they've forgotten we ever happened. The storms, the will of the ocean, it's all a part of living here. Some days we prosper, others we salvage. That's the natural ebb and flow of life here. No one can ask for any more than that. The thought that any one person could affect it is ridiculous, and if I'm honest, vain. Whatever rain clouds you bring with you will, mostly, just affect you. Sometimes other people might get a few drops, but you're the one feeling the downpour. Just remember, harbour walls are thick and strong, and they last against every weather. We all need a safe harbour now and then. I'm sorry you don't have one where you live. But for as long as you're here, I can be yours, if you like. Tears pricked my eyes, and gratitude welled in my chest. Gratitude for this woman, who was showing me more kindness than I had felt in years. I looked at her round, bespectacled face, set within shoulder-length auburn hair. She couldn't have been more than ten years older than myself, but there was an assuredness about her that I came to think of as motherly. She seemed stable, steady, reliable. Reaching across the table, I gripped her hand tightly and thanked her. She gripped mine right back. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be so dramatic, I sniffed. Honestly, I feel ashamed. This is not who I ever pictured myself being. Eliza Jane leaned forward slightly. Well, maybe that's just it, she posited. You see, I believe that when life doesn't turn out the way we thought it would, then we can grieve the loss of the person we thought we'd be. Call it the death of a dream or whatever you will. The fact remains, there was a version of yourself you hoped to become and one day you wake up and realise that it will never be so. That loss has a weight. Even if it was never a physical reality, your mind will feel it and grieve it. She pulled a face as if she was struggling to explain herself, but carried on. But when you accept the death of that version of you, a space opens up which you can fill with a new version, a true vision of who you'll be. Who knows, your time here might just be what you need to find your true purpose. Maybe it didn't go the way you expected, because you were meant for greater things. I understood what she was saying, and as much as I wanted to agree with her, the fact remained that right now I couldn't trust my own mind. If I couldn't even believe what my own senses told me, there was no way I could trust any version of who I was, let alone think of who I wanted to be. Tears fell and soaked the lap of my dress. I breathed out a sigh. When I came here, I had hoped that the air and the distance from all my stresses would help get me back to normal, so I could have time to clear my head and make sense of things again, but I'm afraid that this is it for me now. I can never go back. The rest of my life will be spent in a constant state of dread and uncertainty, questioning reality and feeling as though there's always someone watching me. I let out a small growl and swept my hair back. It's just so frustrating. I'm sorry, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm all confused. I feel like I haven't actually been asleep for days. Don't tell me it's because of the beds, she joked. I shook my head. I've been having the wildest dreams. Dreams about this place, but also of things that couldn't possibly be happening. They feel so tangible, and yet so unreal that I can't tell if I've been sleeping or not. So now, even in my waking moments, I can't be sure that I'm not dreaming. I don't know if I'm dreaming right now, I added trying my best to stay good-humoured about it. But there was no mirth in its delivery, and instead just felt pitiful. 
I pressed my fingers to the lids of my blistering eyes. Eliza Jane, I'm just so tired. The voice that spoke these last words was a defeated one, emptied of anything other than fatigue and desperation. But to say it aloud was a strange relief. It was like confessing to some guilty secret, and some of the gnawing anxiety lifted. Slowly my awareness left the frantic tangle of my thoughts and came back into the room and the rest of my body. My hands, cheeks and lips were still cold from the walk, as if the blood had stilled inside me throughout our conversation. The sound of the gulls gently calling in the grey twilight rang out nearby, as if telling me that the ones I had seen on the beach were in fact a dream, and that the real gulls were alive and still flying lazily through the sky. The tea Eliza Jane had brought for me still steamed in its cup upon the table, and for the first time I started to notice the sweet perfume coming from it. It was so inviting, especially given the rediscovered chill in my hands, so I reached out and brought it to my lips. Better? Eliza Jane asked after I'd taken a sip. I nodded, and she smiled a self-satisfied grin. If there's one thing all Yorkshire women know, it's that there's nout can't be helped by a nice cup of tea. In that moment, at least, she was right. The tea was a tonic, and though it couldn't take away the heaviness in my breast or the delirious fatigue, I at least felt warmer, and that, in its own way, felt like a victory. So tell me, I asked once I felt calmed and wanted to change the subject. Which is your safe harbour? Husband or dog? The musical laugh resounded once more. Well, right now, neither. I'm currently on open water. They both left last night. Left? Oh, yes. Husband's gone, dog's gone. It's just you and I here. There's only a handful of people left in the whole town. If you are going crazy, now would be the time to do it. I could scream bloody murder and there'd be no one here to hear it. She smiled, amused by her own wit. But I couldn't bring myself to return it. The doubt had been planted in my mind, and her comments felt oddly portentous as if the prospect were very, very real. The Outsider, Part 2, Grave Concerns, was written by Andrew Bate and read by Chloe Gorman, with music also by Andrew Bate. The Outsider is a five-part Penny Dreadful novella produced by Moth Sanctuary Productions as part of Penny Dreadfuls from the Moth Sanctuary. Subscribe and download all episodes of the series now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on other Moth Sanctuary shows, visit mothsanctuaryproductions.com. <laughs>